Last year, COVID-19 kept us apart. This year, we're finally together again. Tonight, tonight we meet as Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, but most importantly, as Americans. With the duty to one another, to America, to the American people, to the Constitution, and an unwavering resolve that freedom will always triumph over tyranny. We'll see. Hope he's right. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountain, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites except for Spotify. Blanketing planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for our special post-State of the Union coverage of Joe Biden's first official State of the Union address. We will be joined very momentarily by a fine panel of some of our favorite guests for some smart post-speech insight and analysis. No pressure, guys. Uh, Very quickly, however, as we try to lurch our focus back to the U.S. today after several days of focus on the appalling attacks on Ukraine by Russia, which is said to be still intensifying as we go to air with indiscriminate bombing of civilian targets and urban areas at this hour in major cities, along with the uh, unspeakable suffering and death on both sides, even as Ukrainians continue to valiantly defend their homeland and, yes, democracy itself. At the U.N. General Assembly on Wednesday, the world continues to unite against Russia's actions as their unprovoked attack on a sovereign neighbor was condemned in the U.N. General Assembly by a lopsided 141 to 5 vote. There were 35 abstentions, uh, including China. Among those who spoke in favor of Russia were Belarus, Cuba, North Korea and Syria. 
But the fight for democracy, if far less bloody at the moment, is also being waged here at home. On Tuesday, we saw the first primary uh, of the 2022 midterm cycle that was held in Texas, where, as we previously reported, an enormous number of mail-in ballots have been rejected by county election officials based on a new voter suppression law called SB1 that was enacted by state Republicans last year and used for the first time in their first-in-the-nation primary, which concluded on Tuesday. At least the voting concluded. At least the voting concluded for uh, most folks, well, for, for everyone, although there are still uh, six days, I believe, that uh, late vote-by-mail voters can get in and cure any deficiencies in their ballots under the SB1, new SB1 restrictions. There were some troubling anomalies that I hope to look into a bit closer as uh, time moves on uh, regarding reports of some polling places that were closed to either Democrats or, in other cases, reportedly Republicans in Houston's Harris County, where uh, counting and or reporting of initial uh, unofficial results have been somewhat stalled, reportedly due to problems with the county's new unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. There's a surprise and fallout from SB1, that new voting restriction law tying up the tallying of as many as one third of Harris County's thousands of absentee votes. For the moment, however, According to reported, computer-tallied, unofficial results of the top-line most-watched races nationally, the Lone Star State's two-term Republican governor, Greg Abbott, was able to hold off two primary challengers, including former Florida congressman and former Texas Republican chair who quit the job to run against the governor, Alan West, uh, Greg Abbott was able to hold them off to win his party's nomination to run for a third term there. He'll now face, uh, apparently, face off against former Democratic congressman and U.S. Senate candidate Beto O'Rourke this November. The other top races, uh, race that many are watching is for Texas Attorney General, where the corrupt Trump-endorsed Republican Ken Paxton faced several challengers. Paxton has long been under state felony indictment on securities fraud charges. He faces an FBI probe at the same time over allegations leveled by his own staff of abuse of power for favors received and granted, uh, allegedly, with a top donor, including a job that the donor is said to have provided to Paxton's secret girlfriend. Nonetheless, the so-called conservative family values law and order Texas Republicans gave Paxton a, a victory on Tuesday, but it was not enough to hold uh, to avoid a runoff in late May with state land commissioner George P. Bush, who has also attempted to cozy up to Donald Trump despite the disgraced former president's years of attacking uh, of attacking George P.'s father, Jeb. And his uncle, George W. Uh, Bush and Paxton will face off again for their party's nomination on May 24. And the Democratic U.S. House primary in Texas's 28th district between the pro-gun, anti-abortion Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar, easily the party's most right-wing member of the U.S. House, uh, between him and progressive challenger Jessica Cisneros, that was still reportedly undecided as of early 
Wednesday morning, we'll keep our eyes on that. Cuellar's house was recently searched, also, by the way, by the FBI. It still remains unclear as to why. There was one clear victory for progressives in Texas on Tuesday as Greg Cesar, a former Austin city councilman, was projected to have uh, to have won the 35th congressional district pr- uh, primary outright, avoiding a runoff there. Cesar was endorsed by Bernie Sanders and campaigned with uh, New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and is seen as the favorite to win the seat in November. As noted, we will do our best to follow up on loose ends there in Texas and on uh, some of those reported problems in Harris County in the days ahead. But on Tuesday night, President Biden offered his uh, State of the Union address to a joint session of Congress. The speech comes at a fraught and precarious moment, to say the least, for the country, for the world, and yes, for Democrats and democracy itself. The international crisis sparked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine is shifting by the minute. At home, Biden's political standing has taken a beating over the past year. Even before the uh, Russia conflict, the positive poll ratings the president enjoyed in his first few months in office have now plummeted. They are a distant memory, thanks in no small part to an obsession by media and opportunistic Republicans on historically high inflation rates. Despite record low unemployment, the uh, highest growth in gross national product since the 1980s, growth in worker wages for the first time in decades, not to mention record corporate profits. Nonetheless, repeated inflation concerns and rising gas prices, the unexpected prolongation of the COVID-19 pandemic, A uh, brief but chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan to end the U.S.'s unpopular 20-year war there and the blockade of the bulk of his domestic agenda and the protection of American democracy itself uh, by two obstructionist senators from his own party uh, have all helped to crater Biden's approval ratings in recent months. And so the State of the Union offered Joe Biden an opportunity to try to pull some discontented voters back onto his side as he attempted to balance both his domestic agenda with due gravity to the situation in Eastern Europe. Here's Washington Post's supercut of a few key moments from Biden's address on Tuesday night, just in case we don't get to everything with our guest today. Tonight, we meet as Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, but most importantly, as Americans, with the duty to one another, to America, to the American people, to the Constitution, and an unwavering resolve that freedom will always triumph over tyranny. The Ukrainian ambassador to the United States is here tonight, sitting with the First Lady. Let each of us, if you're able to stand, stand and send an unmistakable signal to the world of Ukraine. Thank you. Tonight, I say to the Russian oligarchs and the corrupt leaders who built billions of dollars off this violent regime, no more. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for you, ill-begotten gains. And tonight, I'm announcing that we will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia. Unlike the $2 trillion tax cut passed in the previous administration, 
that benefited the top 1% of Americans. The American Rescue Plan, the American Rescue Plan helped working people and left no one behind. It worked. We created jobs, lots of jobs. In fact, our economy created over 6.5 million new jobs just last year. More jobs in one year than ever before in the history of the United States of America. And with all the bright spots in our economy, record job growth, higher wages, too many families are struggling to keep up with their bills. Inflation is robbing them of gains they thought otherwise they would be able to feel. I get it. That's why my top priority is getting prices under control. Look, we've reached a new moment in the fight against COVID-19, where severe cases are down to a level not seen since July of last year. Just a few days ago, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention issued a new mask guidelines. Under the new guidelines, most Americans and most of the country can now go mask-free. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. Fund them with resources and training. So on this night, on our 245th year as a nation, I've come to report on the state of the nation, the state of the union. And my report is this. The state of the union is strong because you, the American people, are strong. This is our moment to meet and overcome the challenges of our time. And we will, as one people, one America, the United States of America. God bless you all. That was Joe Biden on Tuesday night at his first official State of the Union address. We're joined today on the broadcast for our special coverage, of course, as usual, by our own producer, Desi Doyen, who was up all night making (laughs) clips for us that we will probably never have time to get to. Uh, By the way, Des, is it easier pulling clips from Joe Biden than it was the previous guy? Oh, hell yes, because at least he (laughs) speaks in coherent, complete sentences. Well, there's that. Yes. Uh, And and how about the guy before the previous guy? Easier than that? Oh, yeah, because Obama had so many long pauses. <laughs> it would take like three minutes for him to say something that Biden says in like 30 seconds. Exactly. And our panel of fellow progressive columnists, bloggers, and troublemakers back together again here today, I notice, on the broadcast for the first time, incredibly enough, since just before the final presidential debate back in October of 2020. Richard R.J. Eskow is a longtime freelance writer, political columnist, policy analyst, and host and managing editor of the weekly radio and TV program This, uh, uh, I'm sorry, The Zero Hour. That can be found at thisisthezerohour.com. He's also a former health insurance executive who's uh, now, I, I think, still a senior fellow for health and economic justice with Social Security Works. Uh, Richard, welcome back. I'm not sure if it's a good or bad thing that we have the first State of the Union in a long time that did not have at its core a focus deep into the weeds on American health care policy. Well, you know, Biden had a challenge here, right? Because he had to get through everything he wanted to cover, uh, and Ukraine. So this was a really rapid-fire speech. In a sense, it made me think of Build Back Better. Circumstances forced him to bundle everything together. Mm. 
and uh, and he got through it as much as he could. He didn't say much about health care. He did talk about people in recovery, which meant a lot to me personally. I was very, very moved when he expressed support for people in recovery. He did talk about uh, research, the ARPA-H project. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talked about the cancer moonshot, which I'm a little less excited about, but I love that we, we have a focus on cancer. So he, But he didn't talk about health care financing mm-hmm. that much. He had a lot of ground to cover, and I guess he just couldn't get to it. <laughs> it I mean, yeah. it's impossible. I, I don't know how he got to as much as he did. Of course, we've heard criticism today from people that he didn't spend enough time on each and everything, but... Oh, well, uh, of course, as usual, on the day after such things, we're also joined by the great Heather Digby Parton uh, of uh, both her own Hullabaloo blog and Salon.com, where she is the proud winner of the Sidney Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Oh, Heather, welcome back to the broadcast. Glad to be here. Are you glad we don't have to spend the whole time talking about uh, health care? Or at this <laughs> point, would that be a nice change from what we are actually going to have to talk about? Well, I'm always happy to have them talk about health care. I mean, it's an ongoing you know, tragedy in our society that we haven't ac- actually solved that issue yet of having, you know, mm-hmm. universal, uh, inexpensive health care for, Amer- for everyone in America. Um, but I do understand, I agree with Richard, that this, this was a tough, <laughs> you know, it was a tough uh, uh, challenge for, for Biden to try and get everything in. First of all, he does have a large agenda. It's a, it remains a large agenda, and we all know why. Thank you, Joe Manchin. Thank you, Kirsten Cinema. Uh, that he was unable to tout um, more, you know, achievements mm-hmm. of his first year because of those two that I just mentioned. Um, but it's also, um, you know, the Ukraine situation. Obviously, he had to do a major portion, which I, what I understood, I heard them talking about how that this had been being rewritten on the fly mm. all the way up until the moment, practically, that he mm-hmm. gave it because they were. You know, they weren't sure exactly how to put it in there, and then there were things, you know, things were changing on the ground. So I think it was a tough call, and I think he did a fine job. You know, well, I, don't, I don't have any problem. You with know, as, as long as, before we uh, lose track of health care, by the way, uh, you know, he, uh, Joe Biden mentioned uh, that now we have, you know, plenty of masks for everybody, plenty of vaccines for everybody, uh, soon in any event, uh, plenty of antiviral pills for anybody, all of which is free testing, all of which is free. Uh, which all of which seems to be wildly popular, and by the way, all of which is single payer health care. <laughs> so, uh, right. yeah, popular. Anyway, uh, Heather, uh, let me start broad here, as we as we usually do. We'll we'll drill, drill down to some of the uh, specifics uh, uh, in a bit. But I mentioned the headwinds that Biden has been facing as we get into a midterm election year with Republicans and apparently the media sort of set on focusing on things like inflation, even as Russia's war would seem to have upended just about everything. But the president had obviously a very tall order and an agenda to tackle on Tuesday night. I know how Fox News feels about it, if only from their headline Biden's State of the Union disappoints. Same old claptrap. That's actually their headline. But did he uh, rise uh, in this impossible moment? Did he rise to that moment in in both the U.S. and world history? I mean, this is kind of huge, a huge moment here. 
Well, I think you know the Ukraine portion of the of the speech, which he said at the very beginning of the speech. He, mm-hmm. he went into that and introduced the Ukrainian ambassador, and I thought that was really well done. And I think it was one of those times where, you know, in the middle of some kind of a, a you know a major crisis like this, a major foreign policy crisis, that the president gets up and says something that's kind of unifying. And and when they do it well, I think I think it uh, it has that effect. I mean, I have no idea how this will affect Biden's approval ratings i mean they are totally in the dirt as you pointed out so but i think he did rise to that occasion the rest of it i think it you know again it's very difficult the democrats always have this problem and i just have to point out that the the historical pattern here is clear the the republicans come in and they wreck the place Mm -hmm. and democrats come in and have to clean up the mess and Mm -hmm. in the first two years it's really hard to Mm -hmm. deal with the mess that has been left. And they inevitably have to face these horrible headwinds where people are sort of having to deal with the cleanup, and we all know how bad that is just in life, right? I mean, cleaning up is not as much fun as making the mess. (laughs) And... um, you know, so so it's a it's a hard thing, and, and they often have to do that. But but it takes time to sort of work through this stuff. And I think that you know the midterms obviously huge, huge, huge challenge on a million different levels. Um, we can talk about that another time. But uh, I think that that makes it very difficult for him to to kind of you know re- reset, as they were saying mm-hmm. that he needed to do. And uh, I'm not sure if he did it or not. I guess we'll see in the polling if it makes any. Well, yeah, speaking of the polling, uh, Richard Eskow, uh, CNN snap polling after Biden's address found that 41 percent of those polled had a very positive reaction to Biden's remarks. Twenty nine percent had a somewhat positive reaction. So collectively, 70 percent viewed the speech as positive and 29 percent had a negative reaction to the speech. That seems pretty good to me. But then CNN went on to explain that those numbers were somehow terrible news for Joe Biden. I kid you not. So, he, you know, he's not going to get much help from either the wingnut media like Fox uh, or the supposedly non-wingnut media of CNN. How do you see big picture the American people viewing what they saw on Tuesday? And I guess the same question I gave to Heather, did, did Biden meet this historical moment? Well, you know, the first question, I, I think the uh, the standard uh, conventional wisdom on polling after a State of the Union is that only supporters of the president watch it, and therefore he's going to get great numbers no matter what. But, you know, it's a, it's a head I win, heads I win, tails you lose situation. If they had not been good numbers, it would have been bad for him, and the fact that they were good numbers doesn't mean it's good for him. So in that kind of game, the president doesn't win but i think that the uh, you know the so-called mainstream media outside mm-hmm. of fox to be you know look i have a lot of things i wish biden would, was doing but he's limited by uh, what we've seen uh, you know the uh, his thin senate majority and so many other things he's in, but he's not getting a break from the media i think that's one of the reasons his numbers are so terrible i think people are also terribly sick of COVID, and uh, I think he's had to bow to that fatigue and did so last night by talking about a reset. Now, I I would suspect he doesn't think that's the wisest thing from a public health perspective, but politically he's got to do it. So to me, you know, on the grand scheme of things, I think the big lesson here is 
the limits of presidential power. Mm. And the fact that he would love to be doing, in my understanding of it, and I don't sentimentalize politicians, but I think he'd love to be doing a lot more. I, I, I sat there all night thinking, you know, here's a man who spent 50 years running for president. Now he's got it, <laughs> and I feel sorry for him. Yeah, right. <laughs> Kinda, yeah. I mean, well, you know, let's start specifically with Ukraine here. Obviously, these horrific events over the past week largely took over much of what was otherwise expected to be a focus on reviving uh, Biden's domestic agenda. Uh, We will get to that as well today, I think, I hope. But we have to start, as he did, with Russia's war on Ukraine and the U.S. response to it, at least as of today. Putin is now isolated from the world more than he has ever been. Together, together, along with our allies, we are right now enforcing powerful economic sanctions. We're cutting off Russia's largest banks in the international financial system, making Putin's $630 billion war fund worthless. Tonight, I say to the Russian oligarchs and the corrupt leaders who built billions of dollars off this violent regime, no more. The United States... The United States Department of Justice is assembling a dedicated task force to go after the crimes of the Russian oligarchs. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for you, ill-begotten gains. And tonight, I'm announcing that we will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia and adding additional squeeze on their economy. He has no idea what's coming. He has no idea what's coming. Richard Esco, uh, setting aside the years of, we will call them for now, missteps by the U.S. and NATO following the, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. This is obviously a wildly dangerous moment for the world, and it seems to me that Biden has united the West and, and much of the free world in his uh, response to Russia's aggression here is... Uh, is it enough? Is it too much? Or is it just about Goldilocks as you see it at this point? Well, you that's a question that changes second by second, I, uh, moment by moment. Mm. You set it up just right, I think, which is if we don't go back and try to rewrite history of the horrendous mistakes that were made in the 90s and beyond, if we just talk about the hand that Joe Biden was dealt in this moment with this invasion of Ukraine, I would say that he's handling it perhaps not perfectly, but really, really well. He was very smart, in my view, to take the use of U.S. ground troops off the, off the table mm-hmm. right up front, mm-hmm. because, you know, he's got to walk the line between placing pressure on Putin to back off and not letting this thing escalate out of control into something, into potential annihilation. Yeah. So, to me, he's walking that tightrope. I think he's doing a decent, uh, a very good job of it, actually, and uh, probably better than I would have guessed he would. And, um, you know, he has, I believe, brought a lot of Western democracies and a lot of other countries Mm -hmm. together supporting him in this. So, I mean, just imagine if this had happened two years ago. Oh, you, you, well, you have a habit of uh, running chills down all of our spines when you show up on this show, Richard, and saying things like that. Uh, Heather, the, uh, the president characterized the war in Ukraine uh, correctly, as I see it, 
as an unmistakable battle of democracy versus autocracy. In the battle between democracy and autocracies, democracies are rising to the moment, and the world is clearly choosing the side of peace and security. This is the real test, and it's going to take time. So let us continue to draw inspiration from the iron will of the Ukrainian people to our fellow Ukrainian Americans who forged the deep bond that connects our two nations. We stand with you. We stand with you. Putin may circle Kyiv with tanks, but he'll never gain the hearts and souls of the Iranian people. He'll never, he'll never extinguish their love of freedom, and he will never, never weaken the resolve of the free world. Uh, Heather, you note in your column today at Salon uh, on Tuesday's speech that Biden's remarks about democracy versus autocracy were about much more than, you know, simply the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Now, I concur, of course, but do the American people understand that yet? I mean, you know, especially without any direct references in the speech, for example, to January 6th and our own war against autocracy in this country, as I see it, uh, as you know, I mentioned at the top, Texas blocked thousands of legitimate vote by mail ballots in their primary election on Tuesday. You know, Donald Trump, meanwhile, salivating in the wings. Do, do the American people understand the stakes here at this point in this country and around the world? Well, I don't know. I, you know, that that's, remains to be seen, I think. Uh, to me, this was a subtext throughout the, the whole part of the speech that was about Ukraine and democracy and the world coming together and fighting autocracy, et cetera, et cetera. I, I heard the echoes of that in there, but I don't know if anybody else did or if most other people did. But the truth is, is that last year when he gave his first speech to the joint session of Congress. It wasn't a technically a State of the Union, but it had all the same trappings. Mm-hmm. Um, he did uh, address January 6th, and he addressed it by, you know, saying America's adversaries, the autocrats of the world, are betting we can't overcome the lies, anger, hate, and fears that have pulled us apart. They believe we're too full of anger and division and rage. They look at the images of the mob that assaulted the Capitol as proof that the sun is setting on American democracy, but they are wrong. Well, to me, uh, you know, I think that that was almost certainly you know, one of the you know, observations that, that Vladimir Putin made in, in making his decision, I mean, everybody's talking about what's motivating him and why is he doing this, is he crazy, is he sick, you know, whatever. But it seems obvious to me that he saw an America that was, that was you know, greatly divided and had was, you know, basically in chaos in terms of its mm-hmm. government. And the, the Europeans, of course, you know, they're fighting amongst themselves and great fissures between the, within the alliance mm-hmm. because of Donald Trump and the rest over the course of four years. I think it was very easy for him to look and say, now's a good time for me to make this, make this move based upon what he was seeing. And so to me, this thing is, this is all, this is all connected. And when, when, you know, I don't know if people saw it, but I think it was whether they saw it or not. And, you know, it seems to me that one of the reasons why Biden was able to bring together this rather impressive coalition of virtually everybody, mm-hmm. and I mean, even China's kind of going, yeah, maybe we're not going to get too involved in this. You right. know I mean? Well, this they, is ab- not, they uh, abstained from the <clears throat> uh, General Assembly vote. They didn't vote against it. Which exactly. they could have. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, so I think that, that what has happened is, is that suddenly, as I put it in, in my piece this morning, is that you know, the dawning, there's a dawning realization among 
countries around the world that the threat of anti-democratic authoritarianism is no longer theoretical. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing in Ukraine mm-hmm. is an actual military action based upon all of those ideas. The Ukrainians wanted, you know, they have a democracy. They wanted to become part of the European Union. They, they are looking to become, you know, uh, you know a, an advanced mm-hmm. A Western democracy, and and obviously that is you know I granted there are many motivations that can that can be driving Vladimir Putin on this, but that is one of them, and after what we've seen over these past years, um, I think it's fair to say that that he's testing, uh, he's he's testing whether or not the the rest of the world is actually going to back liberal democracy or not. So um, I think that the speech, regardless of whether or not it was, it certainly wasn't obvious, and maybe Biden didn't even mean it. I don't know. But I was struck by the fact that all those Republicans sitting in there, you know, they stood up and clapped for democracy, blah, blah, blah. You know, every time, every time uh, Biden talked about it during the, UK, the Ukraine passage of the speech. Um, but you just have to wonder if there was even a moment of self-reflection among any of them mm. as to how they might have been... Um, you know, somewhat responsible for getting us to this point. Yeah, and you know, uh, Richard, and actually, uh, I'll, I'll I'll ask this to to both of you. Uh, you know, I, there's nothing I can do about uh, these uh, MAGA right Trump Republicans. You know, you know, we saw this uh, this this white nationalist rally conference over the weekend where they were chanting, you know, cheering for Russia, chanting Putin's name. There's nothing we can do, uh, at least I can do, about about that, uh, the folks on the right. But the folks on the left, that's a separate issue. I, I've been making the case, uh, Richard, since Russia's invasion that, you know, while there may be plenty to complain about regarding NATO's eastward expansion after the Cold War, as, as you referenced, uh, but as long as Russia has launched this attack on its sovereign neighbor, and until they stop bombing and or, you know, withdraw, this ought to be the one thing that could or at least should unite the entire country, right, left and everyone in between. Obviously, that's not the case with some Trump Republicans, but I have heard from some theoretically anti-war progressives some of the stuff I've heard, I, I think that some of them are, in fact, off the rails here, focusing their blame on the U.S. for what is happening right now in Ukraine. And I opposed U.S. aggression. I think we all did on uh, sovereign nations. So at the sa- in the same regard, I oppose Russian aggression on sovereign nations. This is an easy call for me. Why are some on the left... Uh, which I sometimes describe as the sort of Glenn Greenwald-led left-wing contrarian industrial complex. What are they not getting? Uh, or is it a small segment? I should ignore them. Uh, or or am I just wrong and, and missing something here, Richard? Well, I to be honest, I haven't run across that many people on the left with those positions. Good. I do think there. I do think there. Maybe I just travel in better better circles. I don't yes, know. I no don't doubt. Think, you know, as I said earlier, you know, there are legitimate criticisms to be made about American expansionism, American imperialism, but we should be able to, uh, you know, brutality. I could go on and on, believe me. But there, we should be able to hold two thoughts at one time. We should be able to say, yes, our involvement in the Middle East was and continues to be shameful. Yes, we're facilitating a mass casualty event in Afghanistan, Afghanistan as we speak. And you know what? What Putin has done is vile and reprehensible, and we should all 
stand together to oppose it. Maybe Joe Biden should have offered something different diplomatically last year. I don't know. But today, the one thing we should all be clear about is that Putin has to be stopped. Now, we got to do that in a measured way so we don't start world, literally start World War III. But, uh, you know, the enemy of my perceived enemy, if I'm on the left, definitely is not my friend in this case. Uh, Heather, before I get out, do you want to get in on this? Uh, maybe you <laughs> run in better circles than I do as well. And again, it's not a lot of folks, but there is a contingent on the left, and I can't do anything about the right. But where I can speak to folks on the left to say, no, this one is easy. This is clear. You can oppose Putin and Russian aggression in Ukraine, and we all ought to stand. Uh, any thoughts you got there for me? Well, for me, it's, it's simple. It's exactly as you said. I was against the war in Iraq. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that was the invasion of a sovereign nation unprovoked, mm-hmm. and I'm against this. And this is not hard for me at all. I mean, this is just a matter of principle. And, of course, as Richard says, there are a million things that we we can look at as far as what precipitated this and be able to say that, you know, that whatever the U.S. and, the, and NATO and the European Union, whatever, may have done to, you know, create uh, the, the environment that made this, mm-hmm. that gives, you know, whatever, that led to this. But it is what it is right now, and, and it's just wrong. You don't take that action. He's got troops in there. They're using, you know, uh, illegal... You know, cluster munitions. Cluster munitions yeah. and these these uh, what are they called? Thermobaric bombs yeah, that, yeah. that you know suck the air out of people's lungs and things. I mean, come on, this is not a hard call. No, it is not. Quick, but let's take. And I don't mean yeah. to. I, I don't mean to trivialize this, but if I forget to lock my car, that's not justification for the guy who steals my radio. Thank you. Well said. All right, let's take a quick break here. We'll come back with our special coverage of Tuesday's State of the Union Address with our guests Heather Digby-Parton of Salon, Richard Escow of the Zero Hour, of course, the delightful Desi Doyen. I am Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. My guess is if we took a secret ballot in this floor, that we'd all agree that the present tax system ain't fair. We have to fix it. I'm not looking to punish anybody. But let's make corporations and wealthy Americans start paying their fair share. Look, last year, 55 of the Fortune 500 companies earned $40 billion in profit and paid zero in federal taxes. Now look, it's not fair. That's why I proposed the 15% minimum tax rate for corporations. That's why I propose closing loopholes for the very wealthy who don't pay, who pay a lower tax rate than a teacher and a firefighter. We'll grow the economy, lower the cost of families. So what are we waiting for? Let's get this done. We all know we've got to make changes. Welcome back to the broadcast special coverage of Joe Biden's first official State of the Union address on Tuesday with our guest Heather Digby Parton of Salon, Richard R.J. Escow of the Zero Hour. Well, after moving on from the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict at the top of his speech, the president 
And frankly, lightning speed moved back to the domestic agenda, which was in no small part, as far as I could keep up, uh, sort of a breakdown into smaller pieces of the central Biden agenda that he uh, ran on and was included as a single piece of legislation in the Build Back Better Act, which was eventually killed by largely one obstructionist Democrat, Senator Joe Manchin, with an assist from Senator Kirsten Cinema, Richard Eskow, uh, hearing Biden's laundry list, and it really was uh, on the expansion of health care, child care, education, environment, support for union workers, and much more. Is there any doubt whether these things get passed or not that Joe Biden is, in my opinion, the most progressive president? Uh, by far since FDR and maybe even ever. And that's whether he's successful at uh, pulling off his agenda or not. I would say not as progressive as FDR, who was really transformative and transformed the relationship government had with the American people. I mean, that was a major shift in American politics. But I would say the most progressive president, arguably since FDR, now, now Lyndon Johnson had uh, Medicare, of course, but, uh, but certainly from Johnson onward, we've seen nobody close. Uh, and uh, the thing that strikes me about it is that I don't think it's just political calculus. Uh, after a lifetime as a centrist, I think I get the sense Biden feels this stuff. He's comfortable with it. He's mm -hmm. comfortable taking the case of working people. And, you know, it's the whole Scranton Joe thing. I think there's... Yeah, he's been a politician and a deal maker and, you know, carried favors for businesses in Delaware. We could go through all that stuff in his history. But I think at this point, with no more offices to win, I think he feels this stuff. I think he'd love to get more done. And, you know, he still uh, mm -hmm. gives the rhetoric of let's do deals with the Republicans, but I think that's sentimentality about process. And uh, I think given half a chance, like with two or three more senators, uh, or ten, we'd, ha we'd get a real progressive presidency out of this guy. I, I, you know, and I, I share your uh, thought there, Richard. I think this does not seem like he's, you know, putting it on to try to, you know, hang on to his, his you know, base on the left or something like this. It seems like he was moved. I would have never, ever guessed that at the beginning of the campaign. It seems like he was moved uh, through the campaign when, uh, you know, running against folks who were more progressive than he was. But he seems to have taken these on as his own. Heather uh, Digby Parton, is that the problem for Joe Biden and his polling numbers? Is he too progressive or is it simply the fact that he's been unable to get these uh, progressive measures, progressive and I should say popular and populist mes uh, uh, measures passed into law? Well, I think it's the, I think it's the latter. Um, I don't think it's because they're too liberal. These are popular measures, and Joe Biden just doesn't, you know, he's not, he just doesn't come off, I don't think, to most Americans as being, you know, way over on the left. I mm -hmm. mean, he's, he's an old guy, you know, Scranton Joe, as Richard said, you know, I mean, that's, that's a very different thing than the, you know, hostility that people seem to have about, you know, quote, wokeness or whatever it is they're bitching about today. <laughs> um, you know, they, they, uh, 
I think that he, I think the problem for him is not that. I think it's that he was unable to to get that passed, and I think a lot of people may be disappointed that he was unable to sort of wrangle the Congress in that sort of LBJ fashion mm-hmm. that people were hoping with his years of experience he could do. And, I, you know, he certainly gave it, a, you know, a tremendous try. It's just that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema basically stood in his way. They're showboating divas, and they, they did their thing, which is not uncommon in Democratic politics. We've talked about this before. There are always a few of those people running around who look in the mirror and see a president, right? So they decide if they have the power that they're going to exercise it. But I, I don't think that's why his, his poll numbers are down. His poll numbers are down because of external events, which are two things, I think, mainly. One is inflation, and the other is the pandemic. Mm. And I think that those two things are so overwhelming to most people who were just going through their lives that, uh, you know, they're looking to the, to the president. I think they were hoping that he was going to put an end to the, to the you know, just the grimness <laughs> of American life under Donald Trump and the pandemic for the last two years, and it hasn't ended. And, and so that's, that's, I think, where his real problems are. I, I really doubt, I, you know, they've been doing polling, and a lot of people aren't even paying attention, right? This is just, a, it's a hangover. It's like the mm. worst hangover of your yeah. life. You're just waking up in the morning going, ugh, you know. Yeah. And I think that's where we're at as a, as a culture, as a, as a people, and, and, and he's paying the price for that. Well, and by the way, since you mentioned uh, LBJ's ability to, uh, you know, wrangle with the Senate to get his way, LBJ had 68 Democrats, exactly. not 50. <laughs> Big difference. As to the pandemic, that may, uh, we will see, uh, that could wane in the coming months, which might make a big difference this November. Inflation, uh, maybe not. Richard, if inflation is the problem, and Lord knows both opportunist Republicans and lazy corporate media continue to tell us that it is, if that is the problem, what is the solution? Well, I gotta say, I don't know if this will help him or not, but he's been smart, I think, on the issue of inflation. I think he's said a couple of things that, uh, you know, well, not 100% true, you know, political statements are black and white, and reality is often gray, but he has said that uh, corporations and big businesses are taking advantage of inflationary talk to mm-hmm. boost prices and profits. He's absolutely right mm-hmm. and i think people understand that when they hear that i think people get that that they're being it's not just forces of nature they're being ripped off that's number one number two he's been really good at talking about uh about monopoly power mm-hmm. and how that's affecting people's lives and that's mm-hmm. not an easy political message to deliver but i mean you know for somebody like me to hear the president of the united states take on shipping conglomerates as part of the inflation problem, uh-huh. that's like heaven if you're a nerd, you know, if right. you're a lefty, lefty nerd, it's like, oh my God, I've died and gone to heaven. So, um, you know, I think he's trying, but this is, I mentioned the media at the top of the hour, this is where the media is doing him no favors because they're, they're exalting, you know, Larry Summers, they're, they're, they're taking a multifactorial kind of inflationary mm. pressure that is not classic inflation, that is not across-the-board inflation, and they're making it sound like it's Jimmy Carter yes. time again. They are really doing this guy a disservice, and, you know, what you do about that, that's a tougher nut to crack. They were doing the, they were doing the bidding of, of the, they are doing the bidding of Republicans. Exactly, I, because it's obviously, yeah. it's clear that the Republican strategy is now to fall 
paint Biden as the as, as another Jimmy Carter. I mean, the word has clearly gone out if you monitor any right wing media at all that this is the the goal that they're fo- that they're going to focus yeah. on. Well, and this is I mean, this yeah, this was not Jimmy Carter. This was a black swan event. I mean, the entire world you know got hit with the worst pandemic in a hundred years. Yes, that's going to have knock on effects on the supply chain and everything else, and it can't be fixed overnight. Well, just because it doesn't it isn't true doesn't mean Republicans won't try to use it. <laughs> well, that's true. Well, really, is there precedent for that? Um, <laughs> the, the, and, you know, a lot of people don't know, for example, he mentioned the six million jobs created. Yes, we're rebounding from a, from a recession, but still that's pretty good. A lot of people don't understand that even with uh, baseline uh, inflation of seven, seven and a half percent, that a lot of people's real wages have not declined. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a black and white story. So when Republicans go out there and say, well, we're all paying inflation taxes and the media doesn't and it doesn't explain that it's selective, it's certain products and goods and services, you know, it's... The it only makes his job tough. The <laughs> only place they heard, that the public heard any of the good economic news was in the State of the Union. If they were watching, they didn't really hear right. it from the media. The media, Heather, you <laughs> you, you retweeted a, a tweet last night. This sort of uh, is, is kind of perfect. Uh, from Kaven uh, Schroft, uh, who noted that after four years of re- refusing to call Donald Trump's lies lies, The fine fact checkers uh, at The New York Times last night fact checking uh, uh, Joe Biden's speech, uh, they cited Biden's accurate statement that, quote, our economy created over six and a half million new jobs last year, more jobs created in one year than ever before in the history of America. They rated that as only partially true because they said that, well, while Biden is correct on the numbers, the government only started collecting this data in 1939. So only partially true. Now, even if that is true, is it conceivable with a much smaller population uh, <laughs> that there was some year prior to 1939 in which six and a half million American jobs were created? No, <laughs> it is not possible. It's ridiculous. So I feel and like, it- I, you know, uh, uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm whining like uh, so many of the folks on the right when they whine about the corporate media. But Jesus, one example after another of them doing this. Well, well I that- want to just say that people like Heather and I and probably you were whining about the media way before the right picked up <laughs> on it. That's true. That's true. So. Yeah. Exactly. Heather? Well, look, of course, of course, it's ridiculous that that you know there were there has not been a year where that many jobs were created in American history, um, and until now, and it, it's it's both sides journalism, right? I mean, I honestly believe this, and I was writing this before the election, which is get ready because the media is going to feel a, a very very deep need to you know even the scales after the harsh criticism that they gave to to Mm, Donald Trump. And, you know, they're going to give Biden a very, very hard time because they just, this is just part of their, and you can see it, now that we have Twitter, you can see these reporters and the way that they respond to criticism, right? I mean, they are Mm. just, they are the most thin-skinned people in the world. Not all of them, I shouldn't say, but many of them are extremely thin-skinned. And any kind of criticism, they just, you know, really lose their their heads. And so there's this this intense pressure. And of course, they, they, some of it's self-inflicted and some comes from the right. So the, uh, a fact check like that, they have to, oh, we better find something, you know, we better find something that Biden said that was wrong, because in a normal, I don't, 
you know, in the last Donald Trump State of the Union, there were probably 300 you know, abject lies in it, right? So they have to, they're trying to, to even the scale. And, and, and that's really hurting Biden. It, you know, Richard's absolutely right about this, that this is hurting Biden, is that the way that they're covering, especially the economy. The economy is a really mixed bag right now. You know, everything, you know, there's all this great news, and then there's this, and the volatility in the markets, et cetera, et cetera. There's a real story to be told about this. And, you know, one of the things I hope that Biden does, it's, I'm so glad Richard brought this up, is that you know he had, they seem to be focused, realizing that this populist moment that's out there in the U.S. and it exists across the board. It's not just on the right; it's on the left too. That you know this price gouging and monopoly power and things like that. And it's true. It's not like they're just making it up. It's it's a reality. Talking about that that is an attack from the left. Well, the center really. Uh, against what's going on in our economy that could be hugely powerful going into the fall with these economic conditions, with the kind of chaotic thing. It's something people can understand, something they can grab onto and say, this, I get it, okay, that's what's making this happen. That I can understand. And the Republicans aren't offering anything like that. They're just screaming Biden. You know? Yeah. Well, Biden. Le- there's, no, there's no logic to it. Le- let me take a I got to take one more quick break here. We'll come back with our closing few minutes to talk about what the Republicans are saying, in fact, as, as our special coverage continues with uh, Heather Parton of Salon, Richard Esco of the Zero Hour. I'm Brad Friedman, and you're listening to the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. It is in this moment that our character this generation is formed. Our purpose is found. Our future is forged. Well, I know this nation. We'll meet the test. Protect freedom and liberty. Expand fairness and opportunity. And we will save democracy. As hard as those times have been, I'm more optimistic about America today than I've been my whole life because I see the future that's within our grasp because I know there's simply nothing beyond our our capacity. We're the only nation on earth that has always turned every crisis we faced into an opportunity. The only nation that can be defined by a single word, possibilities. So on this night, on our 245th year as a nation, I've come to report on the state of the nation, the state of the union. And my report is this. The state of the union is strong because you, the American people, are strong. We are stronger today. We are stronger today than we were a year ago. And we'll be stronger a year from now than we are today. This is our moment to meet and overcome the challenges of our time. And we will, as one people, one America, the United States of America. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you. Go get him. Here we go back. This is the moment. Tonight is the night. We'll fight till it's over. Uh-huh. So we put our hands. 
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, Joe Biden there uh, wrapping up uh, his, his, uh, his pep talk State of the Union address on Tuesday. Our uh, closing few minutes here with Heather Digby, partner of Salon, Richard Esca. We've got just a minute or two. Guys, uh, let me actually run, go around the room here. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds offered the Republican response to Joe Biden's State of the Union. Uh, let me get uh, quick thoughts from, uh, well, from each of you on that. Let's, uh, let's start with Richard. You know what? The less said about the Republicans, the better. They're going to say their their crap, and uh, I think the more we tune it out and focus on a positive message and not engage with them, that was a great uh, wind-up by Biden. Sounds even better than it looked on TV, and uh, I say let's focus on that. All right. Richard Eskow is going for the John Kerry Swift boat response. Uh, and <laughs> How'd that work out? <laughs> Heather, uh, your thoughts on, on the Republican uh, response? which by the way to me just you know sounded like the they could cut and paste that to every single republican for every single office in america and run that between now and november well i'm glad you said that because i'm jumping on richard's swift boat here because i didn't watch it <laughs> what? i'll be perfectly what? honest i did not watch it i oh couldn't my bring God. myself to do it i tuned over to fox news for a few minutes but that, watching that speech, it was came on and it just went, oh, sorry, I just don't have it in me. <laughs> well, wow. I had to watch it. So I would say that it was really super cringy myself and that it was like a, a Mad Libs of right-wing trigger words. So I think that pretty much sums it up. They had no policy whatsoever, All a lot of faux populist folksy kind of... Uh, BS. So it's at least a preview of what we can expect. Exit question. Uh, you get about five seconds each to answer. Uh, will the uh, Tuesday speech have any chance of reversing Biden's low poll numbers? Are there just too many unknowns between here and there? Or are the Democrats just toast this November, no matter what happens, as uh, so many in the media seem to keep repeating over and over again? Heather, you're up. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what will happen there. I don't think that anybody knows what's going to happen in the fall. History suggests one thing, but we are in strange days indeed. And I don't know what's going to happen in, you know, in, in the election. I think anything could. So R that's where I'm at. Richard, is it a mistake to go with the conventional wisdom that, oh, the Democrats are going to get walloped in November? No, it's not a mistake, but we can't know. And so I don't think the speech will change his fortunes, but if he keeps up with some of the stronger themes in it and uh, the winds are at his back, uh, we shouldn't give up. There are still chances that something good could happen. Well, and for me, I always think you should never, ever give up. So there. There you go. Yeah. Never giving up. Richard R.J. Eskow uh, of The Zero Hour. You can find his program at thisisthezerohour.com. You can also find him on Twitter at R.J. Eskow. Heather Digby Parton, of course, can be found at salon.com and digbysblog.net. You can find her on the Twitters at Digby56. Hey, thanks to both of you guys. Let's not uh, make it a year and a half uh, again before we bring you both back. Deal. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. we got Thank to get you. out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We will 
see you there. Until we see you here, hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 